the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, true of violence without force This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, we just want to mention, hey, we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a dollar a month there if you can. But if not, uh, I'd really like to have someone help us out with an iTunes review, maybe. We've got a an ugly one up there that I'd like to move down, so consider that. But Today, uh, Taylor and I are happy to bring you Stephen Zepke, making a return appearance on the show. Stephen's an independent researcher living in Vienna. He is author of Sublime Art Towards an Aesthetics of the Future and Art as Abstract Machine, Ontology and Aesthetics in Deleuze and Guattari, as well as Head in the Stars, Essays on Science Fiction. But the last time that Stephen joined us, we discussed uh, Guattari's screenplay. I'll put that episode in the notes. That was actually before Taylor officially joined the MUHH team. All that said, Stephen, it's so so great to have you back. I'm sorry it's been so long since we've uh since we've spoken. I feel a little bit guilty because I tremendously enjoyed our last our last discussion. So I'm really, really glad to have you back. I'm really excited to hear you and Taylor go back and forth and introduce you two. So yeah, just thanks for taking the time to join us on the show. My pleasure. And you've written a lot more than than what you know. We wouldn't have time to to cover all the stuff you've you've written on. You know, I told Coop that I was excited that you guys were simpatico and already had recorded. I was telling my wife last night, who doesn't give a shit about any of this stuff. I was like, yeah, we're we're, we're talking to a guy tomorrow. He's he's at least in English the forefront thinker on Deleuze, Guattari, and aesthetics. And she's just like, yeah. <laughs> whatever that means but for me that's like a big fucking deal you know and i was telling her some other stuff i was explaining to her about you know non-philosophy and non-euclidean geometry and she was like i failed geometry in high school so i don't you know whatever you say doesn't you know really register but in any case you've always been on like my radar as the go-to guy for you know deleuze aesthetics and and obviously you've branched out since then, which is exciting. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> I mean, I mean, hey. I, I just didn't get a job. And one of the reasons why I didn't get the job apparently was because I was a Deleuzian, which basically means that I'm, oh. now kind of, I'm now engaged in a historical period of philosophy and not in contemporary philosophy. And so this is, you know, this is one of the interesting things that happens when you get excited about something when you're young, is that if you kind of stick with it, then you see yourself turning into this kind of historical entity as you go along, even though you don't really recognize it in yourself. So now yeah, did you now did you not get hired because you're in Vienna? Because I thought the, the Aussies really liked Deleuze, right? Like I thought. No, 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 no. There was one. No, New I mean, Zealand. I, oh. I, I come from New Zealand. I'm via Australia. I, I did my PhD more or less in Australia. But 
No, I mean, there were various reasons why I didn't get the job, but one of them was that I was too Deleuzean. So, but apart from that, not getting the job, that is, is you know, it is definitely true. I mean, because I work a lot in the art world and I, you know, work a lot in art schools and art institutions and, okay. and um, they, you know, that they are kind of very closely registered to whatever's going on in the philosophy world or maybe slightly more broadly the theory world. So you can really kind of register your own, you know, it's like the classic line about the bands who, you know, you play the same venues on the way up and on the way down. It's like you can kind of see, you know, you can kind of see the trajectory of what you're into according to the number of invites and the status of the institutions that you've right. been invited to. You know, the Deleuze thing has definitely been on the downward curve, you know, in the last years. In the, in the art world, at the, at the least, I would say, you know, and I think there, there has been a kind of historical shift now. And, and so it's part of a historical movement, whether you want to call that 68 or something else, mm-hmm. that definitely seems to have kind of settled into its historical position. If it makes you feel better, I dropped out of grad school because I was, I knew I wasn't going to get a job being too Delizian, too Laurelian, too <laughs> Guattarian. Yeah. You know, so so I, I solidarity and that in that front, Deleuze is still kind of uh, even if places like Edinburgh really turn out his uh, works on him, I think he's still in America relegated to literature departments for the most part. But that's a whole other story that we've talked about. We do like sure. to start with the origin story, right, Coop? This is kind of, <laughs> well, that's this, appropriate then. Have you asked uh, Stephen about his origin story before? I don't think we did. Did I recall? No, but it's been I a couple of years so. now. No, I don't think we talked about that. But yeah, I mean, my origin story is, I mean, it's interesting if you talk to people that are into Deleuze, Deleuze, Guattari, because I've definitely heard my origin story out of other people's lips as well. And, you know, I was an undergraduate. I was mm-hmm. I was super interested in French theory, more or less, because nobody knew anything about it in New Zealand. <laughs> so that seemed like just a good reason to be into it you know, without knowing anything about it. And I kind of threw myself, first of all, into Lacan and then into Derrida mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, and various other things. And, you know, I was totally into that. And I used a lot of Derrida in my master's thesis. And and then a friend of mine kind of said, oh, you got to read this. And he gave me a copy of A Thousand Plateaus. Awesome. And I started reading it and I was like, oh, my God. What the is fuck about- is this? But it's awesome. <laughs> no, no. What I thought was, this is about me. Oh, <laughs> you tell. this is about me. And it was like the first time I'd ever read a piece of philosophy, not having a huge amount of experience at that point, but nevertheless, having read Lacan and Derrida. And with them, I was only ever just trying to decode this stuff, which yes. you know, seemed so incredibly obscure to me. That was where the excitement was. But with Deleuze and Guattari, it was like they were actually telling me about things that were actually happening in my life and that oh. I regarded as being kind of personal. And so that was a total mind blower that philosophy could actually be about your own life, about my own life. And Mm. it wasn't just some abstract stuff that I was trying to understand what it all meant, but it didn't really, it didn't really have anything to do with me, which is maybe bizarre because I know a lot of people read Lacan and think that it's all about themselves, but I didn't have (laughs) that. I didn't have that response to it at all. So, yeah, so that was the Deleuze and Guattari thing, and then that was basically it. And then after that, I was just basically full-time immersed in Deleuze Deleuze Guattari right through for the next kind of 15 years, I would say, and, and mm-hmm. you know, didn't really get out of it until relatively recently, I guess. So, yeah, so that that was me. That was It was just like the concepts they were using and the, the ideas that they had, I just totally identified with it. I mean, maybe partly that's a biographical thing as well, in the sense that I come from New Zealand, which is like, at least when I grew up in the 80s and the early 90s, it was like, 
there was nothing there, you know, like there was huh. really nothing, hardly anything going on. So, you know, I had this trajectory of getting out like yeah. from yeah. a really early <laughs> age. And and this kind of trajectory, you know, I just found that into Elizabeth Hurry. So clearly it's like they, you know, when they <laughs> write about a line of flight, and I was like, Oh, well, yeah, that's me, you know, mm. I mean, that's okay. what I'm doing. I just gotta get out. And then I went to Australia, and then after five years or six years in Australia, I was like, I've got to get out, I've got to get out, you know. And then, it was like I, I come to Europe and and so I guess that was it. That was they just seemed to be describing something that was very, very personal. Well, besides the line of flight, what 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 else can you recall that really grabbed you? I mean let me ask that question on a slight tangent, but okay, good. Sure we'll, on a line I'm of flight. Sure, I'm yeah. sure it will explain everything to you. My first PhD that I started doing but never finished, in fact, never really got very far with which the reasons for which will become obvious soon was a phd that was supervised by brian masumai and oh my god was, awesome it was called sex drugs and rock and roll oh okay <laughs> it right. had like three three parts one devoted to each of the three uh-huh. anyway i won't i won't go into all the details i'm not even 100 percent convinced that I, I can see can, it i can see it sex psychoanalysis drugs with uh yeah 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 it know, was all yeah. it was it had a whole structure but you know i didn't finish it and then i i started something much more kind of academic shortly after that but it was basically when i say that they were talking about my own life it was obviously those parts especially in the thousand plateaus where they're talking about drug users or they're talking about liminal experiences you uh-huh. know, absolute deterritorialization that became a theme in my when i did my kind of proper phd which was supervised by paul Patton, the, the yeah. translator of difference repetition we used to have these we used to have these supervision meetings where it would be like he'd be like it's not about absolute deterritorialization. It's about <laughs> relative deterritorialization. I'm like, no, I was like, no way. It's all about absolute deterritorialization. And that was like, right. that was the kind of stuff that I was really fascinated by. I was like, yeah, hey, yeah. You just, you know, let's get really out of it and see what happens. You know, I mean, <laughs> that, was the, that was the kind of, that was the research trajectory in every way, basically. That was the kind of thing that appealed to me so much about Deleuze Watari because they yeah. basically seemed to be philosophizing this trajectory. And I mean, I didn't really know it at the time, but in retrospect, I would say that is the 68 thing. And mm-hmm. of course, nowadays, a lot of that 68 thing is very uncomfortable to people because it clashes with the kind of newfound moralism of the contemporary world and mm. um, at that time it was still pretty cool <laughs> as we told you before we, we we've done the the 68 trilogy of leotard uh anti-adipus liminal economy and um symbolic exchange of death and i will yeah, say it's great it makes sense that you uh, never finished your PhD on sex, drugs, and rock and roll because how can one ever finish with sex, drugs, and rock and roll? And I'm, and st- it's- I'm still in my undergrad for this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I will say that uh, you know they themselves, especially Deleuze, when you you know hear that interview in the opposite air, they themselves do kind of vacillate between absolute D, relative D and the merits of, of both. And I think that's why in, in A Thousand Plateaus, they make it more clear that re-territorialization and deterritorialization come together. They come like form and content, right? They are uh, not form and content. What is it? Content and expression, sorry. They kind of come together in terms of strata. So I could see why then you and Patton would have had the back and forth. The dialectical point would be that they, 
it's both and neither, I guess, you know, right? Like something like that. I mean, again, I think it's like, you know, it would be an interesting project to kind of do a genealogy of the the relative and absolute D, as you call it, you know, in the kind of reception of Deleuze and Guattari, because I, I know that, you know, in the early 2000s, there was definitely a strong school of reception that was all about relative deterritorialization and kind of macro politics rather than micro politics and in fact I can remember being hit up at a Deleuze conference I think it was about 2008 in Amsterdam and I gave my paper and Rosie Bredotti got up in the end and had an absolute go at me about exactly this point (laughs) oh my god macro versus micro deterritorialization which for a relatively young academic, it was quite a demoralizing experience, but everyone assured me afterwards that she'd done it a million times before, so that made me feel that made, that <laughs> made mean, me feel a bit... That means she bitter. likes you, right? That means she likes you if she's putting, yeah, she's well, grilling you. She did come up to me the next day and sort of say, oh, we're such good friends now. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. But anyway... I don't think yeah, I can be no, that cruel. There was, at least at that time, and I'm not really sure how... how you know, unfolded after that. But people like Paul, Paul Patton and, and Rosie Bradotti as well was another one. And there were various others who were definitely pushing this kind of social democracy Deleuze. And I'm afraid, you know, my background is, you know, when I arrived in Vienna, I immediately came into contact with Eric Elias. And, um, you know, uh, he was been a PhD student of Deleuze's. And um, his approach was totally different. Like he was all about 68. That was, that yeah. was I mean, even though he was, you know, I think he was what, 11 years old in 1968, but that was his thing completely, you know, and, and, and he'd come through the whole kind of Italian connection with Deleuze and Guattari and, the, right. the, you know, the, the radicals and been involved in all of that as a young man. And, you know, he was very personally, very close with Guattari and, you know, he was all about sort of, libidinal politics let's put it like that but you know if you'd scratch too much into it these days it would be like a massive red flag not to us we're uh, or, or we raise our red flags high uh you know if you want to if you want to say that that's our that's our i mean is it not situation. the ex- is it not the accelerationist sort of thing mm. i mean at the end of the day ultimately you know. Well, it depends on the type of accelerationism you're talking about, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, right. There's left, right, unrestrained. There's left and, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just think we're in it. There's nothing we can do about it. Try to help others as much as you can, and that's that's about it. Now, yeah, I think that's a pretty good policy, but <laughs> you know, I think there's hope for the best. For but I, you know, I don't think there's there's no messiah that's going to come and save us. Uh, I think we're headed. Hang for... on a second. Isn't that <laughs> vitalism? Uh... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, but I'll be. maybe I've been reading too much Dune. Is the well, it's in the Messiah, Stephen. You you quote, and and this isn't to get into Laura well early, but this is anticipating maybe you quote, you know, struggle and utopia in the end times of philosophy, one of Laura Wall's works, and the opening of the book, Coop, is should humanity be saved? Is it even a question? Oh, nice. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and throw that out in case you're you're gonna bring in Dune Messiah or or any questions of Messiah. Like maybe we don't need a messi- messianism in terms of of generic humanity. But what, in, what's the book? Uh, struggle, to... struggle and Utopia in the End Times of Philosophy. Struggle and Utopia in the End Times of Philosophy. Okay. So he opens this question like, is it even a question of saving humanity? And I think that there's you know, if you want to like say it in a nutshell, even though it doesn't do it justice, we're sort of always already saved. There's our there is some sort of 
notion of man as one being, you know, if you want to say foreclosed to say to being saved to salvation, like it's already imminent. In any case, that got a little <laughs> deep. We were talking about cooler things. No, no, but that's I find that really interesting because you know I struggle so much about you know what what is the future in L'Oreal? What is the possibility that he opens up? And it's interesting because what I was thinking about when you were saying that is is you know there's this common well this criticism of Deleuze that I came across in Ray Brazier's book, which is that you know when he talks about science, he really only talks about the biological sciences, and he's not really that much interested in the hard sciences. Mm. And maybe this question of yours provoked me gave me this kind of like thought of like, well, I don't know L'Oreal exhaustively, but from what I know, you know, he, I think, is more interested in the mathematical mathematics or the hard sciences, you know, quantum physics, all of that. But I can't really think of a time when, I, at least in my limited reading of L'Oreal, that he discusses biological sciences. And if we're going to talk about the future of humanity or should humanity be saved or whatever, it's like I even struggle to kind of see what a biological trajectory would be. Mm post position, you know like yeah. how does like life work under a system of determination in the last instance he talks about it as the lived without life you even like quote this yeah lived experience without life he has an essay that i bootleg translated on my website and jeremy smith has got a translation of it too which i think he's trying to publish called Homo Ex Machina. It's uh, 1980, so it's kind of early Laruel philosophy one, as you might categorize it, going into philosophy two, where he's talking about, he's still citing, which he never does anymore, thinkers like Foucault. He's talking about biopolitics. So this early work, you have glimpses of, let's just say, him talking about biology in a broad sense, in the sense in which he will later focus more on just like technics, technology. He's got an essay on Simon Don and Heidegger, right, as the two thinkers of technics. And I think that for Laura Well, one of the quotes that he has that I love in that essay, you know, because I think that Coop, when we had um, Jeremy on, we, we talked to him about this essay, right? That was the whole focus. And so I won't like belabor the point, but, you know, one of the quotes I really like that he has is from Nietzsche from the gay science about how we, you know, we're going to become our own guinea pigs in terms of experimenting on ourselves. And I think that for Laura Well, that experimentation is part and parcel of kind of what he sees non-philosophy doing. Because there is an experimentation in non-philosophy as it takes philosophy as material. And, you know, I think that that's part of it in terms of you know, what happens when we suspend philosophy's belief in itself as pertaining to the real, as co-determining the real, or however you want to say it. And I think that that opens up these new vantage points. Obviously, as you mentioned, he's trying to talk about this sometimes in different registers, whether it be psychoanalysis, like in philosophy three or in philosophy five, in the most recent iteration, he's talking about it in terms of quantum physics, what happens when we kind of look at philosophy as a corpuscle, which is this kind of outdated mode of science, and we think about it as a particle that can be subsumed under a waveform, you know, all of this stuff that probably would beguile scientists like, you know, SoCal and Bond. you could imagine a new fashionable nonsense that would, when Laura was talking about quantum mechanics, 
he's not talking about it as a scientist. And I think that- No, he uses it as a metaphor. Metaphor, maybe. You know, Deleuze would hate that, right? Obviously, he's like, no metaphor, right? That would be the the worst thing for Deleuze. I think that for Laruel, one of the metaphors that he uses is the non-Euclidean metaphor. And that's one of my favorites. He'll he'll call it a a metaphor, right? That the non of non-philosophy is not negative. And I think that's why he doesn't even want to call it non-philosophy anymore. He wants to call it non-standard, maybe- closer to like non-standard analysis. He'll want to call it non-standard philosophy, but the non is, of course, this question of lifting a postulate. And in lifting a postulate, we actually lift a restricted point of view and are able to liberate thinking in this way. And I was trying yeah, to- I mean, that, that's a cool idea. And, and <laughs> I, I like that. And you can kind of see the potential of lifting the correlation, which I think he does a good job of kind of locating and you know the history of metaphysics but you know my problem with it is is that what it's like i'm not convinced that he really wants to experiment with it i just think Mm. he is just totally into kind of destroying it you know of just he's totally into the application of the non and basically at the end of that you've got his system as far as he's laid it out and then you've got what then i don't know what you've got after that you've got the destruction of the existing system, the kind of outline of a new system, which is his, but what is super unclear to me is what that really is. Like, what does it really mean? It's like, in that paper that I did on L'Oreal, which is like, you know, you have to have full disclosure. It's my first thing I've written on L'Oreal. So I'm not not speaking here as a from a position of authority, but But the thing that I was super interested in was that it's often, you know, it's often suggested that you've mentioned it yourself just in experimentation or some kind of obviously nowadays fashionable, this sort of research, artistic research practice. Or, you know, I know people who have written PhDs using L'Oreal that's sort of half photography, half poetry, half Jesus and all that. And then it's like, but when I started really getting into it, I thought, well, hang on a second. I don't think there's really a lot of room for race raising up art as a new kind of methodology or a non-philosophical methodology because aesthetics is totally out the window. It's like there is no subject, there is no object, you know, there is no kind of, there is determination in the last instance, which is like not really aesthetic. There is no, there's yeah. no human feeling, emotion, anything like that. That's all gone out the window. Like what are we really talking about now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there is no politics, you know, or just only this kind of super vaguely delimited anger at authorities, which is cool. Like, like it's good vibe, you know, but it's like, what are we meant to do? Is it a cosmic arm? That's like, you know, I've done all this reading of L'Oreal with this friend of mine, Tony Caruzzi. And, you know, this is what we kind of came back to sometimes that it's like some kind of cosmic arm and it's just like right. a kind of pure singularity where you're just sort of sitting cross-legged in the middle of it you know I mean is that it I mean I don't know I mean probably not but it's like we could never really figure out what it was what I see is what you're characterizing is perhaps Larwell's constant attempts to reformulate and reshuffle as he says he he wants to reshuffle the cards, if you will, of the history of philosophy and put in to light what he's trying to elaborate with the one, you ladder of duality, et cetera, et cetera. He's trying to formalize a way in which non-philosophy can be practiced. But in terms of us who are reading him, I think, and who want to perhaps put to work non-philosophy in various registers, I think we are given the liberty to then 
take it in so many different directions if we, I think the problem you're describing is the fact that so much legwork needs to be done to first make clear what Laura Well is trying to do, even though Laura Well has done that himself. We also need to make clear first the kind of some of the principles and the methodologies that he's doing in order to then do the work, which one of them could be what he calls non-aesthetics. And even though he doesn't go into this very much, he himself is kind of a trained musician. He's written on music in his very early work that will eventually be made available. But for him, I think non-aesthetics is you can combine any artistic composition with any composition of thought without limit. And I think that for him, this is a consequence of, for example, lifting the sufficiency of philosophy, which wants to have one decision per thought or per area of whether it be science, being, region of being, as Heidegger might say, it wants to restrict that to like one per one, right, in a kind of Parmenidian matrix or just the classical view. And I think for, if you can combine any artistic composition with any composition of thought, there is what he calls these fractal islands of non-aesthetic possibilities that can blossom out. Now, he may not be doing that in terms of what he's trying to formalize, which is putting into practice the theory of non-philosophy, but perhaps we can do that. And I think that that's why I see a connection with Guattari, who himself in Chaosmosis is thinking about these possibilities of new subjectivities based on cultivating yeah, I mean, a virtual I, ecology, et cetera. So I think Guattari I mean, is actually practicing this more than Laura Well. We, yeah, we yeah. have to follow Guattari to actually do the Laura Wellian stuff, even if Laura Well isn't doing it. So he's he's kind of like Moses at the at the promised land. He's not going to enter it, but maybe he can like I lead mean, us there. I think it's like, it's a very optimistic no that's the wrong way to say it it's a seductive idea to say okay he's kind of laid out the system he's done the destructive work and then now it's up to us to kind of we can do something with it we can develop it in this way but i guess my question is like who the fuck is this we what is this we i'm sorry but i just don't i don't think there's a we in l'oreal it's there is nothing left of subjectivity it's like there is not even there's no relationship to an object it's like i find it really difficult to imagine what there is no phenomenon there is no perception that runs through a kind of biological perceptive system in any way similar to what we are familiar with now that's why i asked the question about biological science it seems an extraordinarily difficult invitation, <laughs> if you like. It's a fascinating one. It's difficult to drive somewhere where the, all the bits of the car's been destroyed. Positive parts of the system are so kind of violent in a way that it's hard to see how, it's hard for me to see <coughs> how you kind of get up and start walking with them. You know, it's... Right. it's I'm just left kind of, you know, I'm just left sort of stunned and amazed at this point that he's succeeded in getting us to, but I'm kind of have this feeling of being obliterated that I, I you know, I don't know how the body works anymore or, you know, right. how, how I can perceive anything or if I do perceive something, what is it that I'm perceiving or what is perception itself? It's clearly not aesthetic in any kind of Kantian sense. Well, um, okay. he's, very, he's very specific about that because he, he, he's very specific about getting rid of that. So it's like, I mean, on the one side, I'm like totally impressed with it. But on the other side, I'm sort of, 
frustrated with this not being kind of adequate to it in some way or not being able to see the possibilities. You know, I, I think that for me, Laurel, if he might formulate it in a different way, but I see him kind of leading us to what Deleuze and Guattari call for, which is, you know, a new people and a new earth. And I see that insofar as you focus on the destructive aspect of the non, and I see it less destructive as, you know, he wants to call it suspensive. If anything is destroyed, it's sufficiency. It's not, you know, non-philosophy doesn't destroy philosophy same way that non-Euclidean geometry doesn't destroy Euclidean geometry. And in terms of like our everyday perceptions, we may fall, we, we may spontaneously practice philosophy when we think, and that's going to always happen. We may spontaneously perceive in Euclidean forms. The point being is that even if philosophy can be translated into non-philosophy and transformed as material, same way that, non, that Euclidean geometry can be translated into non-Euclidean geometry and transformed, the other way around you lose something. That's the violence is going back after the transformation. So working through the transformative principle does take some legwork. And I think that's what the majority of what he's done is try to like lay down foundations for formalizing this. And I think that's also perhaps true of kind of, I think this is why Chaosmosis came out in a new light reading your retrospective on it you know, 20 years on, now 21, if you will, or we're, we're getting there 21 years on, that what Guattari is talking about is a lot of the stuff that I think follows from the new perspectives that are open once we sort of lift the suspensive principle of philosophy's warmongering ways, right? Because I think Guattari, you know, you call him a philosopher in your work, but in many ways, he's kind of like a mad scientist, as I try to say it, right? He's, He's not bound to any, he's not like Deleuze in a certain way, right? He, Deleuze may be reversing Plato, reversing Kant, you know, taking up Bergson against Bergsonian duration versus Kantian time out of joint, et cetera, et cetera. But like Guattari, I don't think he's worried about the squabbles between schools. Guattari is not really worried about whether we're reversing a philosopher or not, because in a certain way, if you're reversing Plato, if you're reversing Kant, et cetera, you're still within the same system. And I think he's very much more Laruelian. And if you just suspend all that, you're not even worried about turning around or rotating. You're doing your own thing. And I think that's why, if anything, I think chaosmosis has the elements of what non-philosophy could look like from a certain vantage point. I mean, I really think you brought that out in your work, for example, just the possibilities of of seeing things anew, of, uh, uh, of I mean, it's, uh, mutant it's, subjectivities, right? I think that's- I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely something there. I mean, I had thought about some kind of direct compare and contrast of chaos between Guattari and L'Oreal, because it is a term in L'Oreal, maybe not as central as it is in, in Guattari, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, sure, it's, it's totally right what you say that Guattari is not really a philosopher, but but he's kind of like an enthusiast for philosophy. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's like there's two kind of things about Guattari that I always, that for me, kind of a, a kind of describe his character really well. I mean, one, one of them is if you read the letters that he sent Deleuze that was part of, for the writing of Antiedipus. So the way that yeah. the, the relationship works is that Guattari is writing these letters. He sends them to Deleuze. Deleuze can't read them, can't read his handwriting. So Fanny, Deleuze <laughs> 
types it up. Transcribes them, types it up, and then Deleuze kind of takes that, and then he basically writes that in his own words, and that's the book. And Guattari complains about it, or he writes in his in his journal, you know, that he, he struggles to recognize himself in large parts of the book. And but when you read the letters, it's like the letters are amazing because you can see how the content is in the book, but the tone is not in the book, right? The tone is Deleuze's tone because Guattari is like, he's on a permanent rave. Yeah. It's like, it's just all coming out and it's just ideas, 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 ideas. And, you know, you can see why Deleuze was probably kind of excited about it, but you yeah. can also see how he wanted to keep this distance from him. Because that was the other, <laughs> that's the other anecdote from the time is that Guattari is constantly trying to get Deleuze to come along to groups, right? Because Guattari is involved in like 300 groups. You yes, know, exactly. Something. And so he was constantly trying to get, you know, and Deleuze says the famous line, look, you know, two is already a bit too much. <laughs> it's like, and, and the other thing, you know, so that, that's one thing about Guattari that I think is, is totally true what you say is that, you know, he's not relating to the philosophical material necessarily as a philosopher, but as an enthusiast. And the other thing is, you know, that he's a psychoanalyst and there's this great anecdote about an analyst hand that he has, which is a guy from Chile, a Chilean who's an exile and a political exile in, in Paris. And he goes to Guattari because he's having an incredibly hard time because he's feeling so upset and so depressed that his friends are getting imprisoned and tortured and killed. And he's sitting in Paris, you know, having a coffee, whatever. Right. At the cafe. And he's really worried about this. And then Guattari says to him, look, you can come to me and you can kind of moan about your personal situation, whatever, if you want. But, you know, I could help you and I could turn you into a political militant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what happened. And the guy's like, oh, I mean, I'm sure it was not quite as shortened as this. But in the end, that's what happens. Like he does an analysis with Guattari. And the result of that analysis is that he becomes a political militant. Yeah. And that's how he deals with the psychological problems around being in exile in Paris when his friends are being tortured and murdered in Chile. And I always like, wow, fuck, because I don't know if you have, I have some personal experience with psychoanalysis. And this is definitely not the approach that most right. analysts are going to take with you, right? It's like yeah. non-interventionist. They don't even tell you really what they, they try really hard not to tell you what they think. And, um, um, you know, the whole concept of analysis is something completely different. Of course. And so Guattari is going to, I mean, there is a tradition of this kind of analysis that Guattari also draws from, a more interventionist style. But, you know, I just thought, think that's also really great. So that's the thing is, so at this point, I'm thinking, okay, L'Oreal Guattari, Guattari turning the guy into the political militant, L'Oreal, I can't, you know, that doesn't seem to be what L'Oreal is trying to say. Guattari is all about kind of involvement, and that's exactly the part that I find difficult to put to join the dots with with L'Oreal because it seems so much about the non. He seems to get off so much on this kind of detachment, yeah. and it's very interesting. And I understand the potential of pushing it out and, and, and that we carry it on and make it into something else or develop it in ways that are more directly connected to the world, but or connected to the world in different ways but like from the point of view of the personality I, I just have feel like there, there's fundamental kind of differences and you know it's like I don't know I don't know Laurel is very much closer to Deleuze and temperament I think um, yeah that's would be my feeling too you know I, mean, it, it, I always think of something like a, a signifying rupture or like a signification I feel like I get this kind of same feeling that you're describing Stephen 
with regard oh, to Guattari specifically. Laurel, I'm yeah, just not Break, I don't breaking with the, really... break, breaking with the signifier, breaking with the dominance of philosophical decision. I see Guattari like, is already practicing that. Whereas representing Laurel without representing, it. yeah, representing without representation. How what is that? You know, what is a non-signifying assemblage of enunciation? You know, what? How does that? You know, well, I don't, I think we're, in, we're not there yet, right? To, like, we're just not well, the the no, strata, no, the I mean, like substratum is not developed enough for that is, sort of evolution just yet and we may not i don't know that we'll get there but i don't is that like the level that he's thinking at you know this is a crucial point i think that you make here cooper because you know in guattari what that is the a signifying rupture that's aesthetics that's why you know it's so interesting to think art you know in relationship to guattari i think because i mean like the duchamp fountain perhaps is the is that the like crystallized expression well i mean a signifying rupture i kind of think maybe it is like it's it's sort of i think the way that i understand it it kind of approaches that idea there is an a signifying rupture that then produces a a proliferation of affect and i think those two things can't really be separated but i think that that's something i'm not really convinced that i I, i'm not really sure where to put affect in l'oreal because the fact that he wants to step around can't makes it really difficult to understand. I don't know, Taylor, maybe you you have a kind of an idea about that. But I think for, for Guattari, you know, I think Deleuze and Guattari <coughs> are kind of post-Kantian in this very oh, sure. sort yeah, of yeah. perverted way. But they are post-Kantian in the sense that aesthetics, aesthetics is basically ontology. It's basically yeah. vitalism is basically aesthetics and aesthetic in its operation and thought and signifying and representation and all of that comes afterwards. And, oh, for sure. And, and in L'Oreal, I don't know. It's like, I don't know, Taylor, I mean, what do you do with aesthetics and what is non-aesthetics? Like, is that an a-signifying rupture? That is I think so. I, I the do non-photography. Think. I think non the non-photography well, may be the like way to get into that but obviously i haven't read it so i can't really speak to that very well i mean that, 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 you can, you can. <laughs> that's an example but I mean, the way i see non-aesthetics is if larwell is giving us ways in which the formalized theory and practice of how non-philosophy can take philosophy as material transform it according to these axioms and then produce something new there is already inherent in practicing non-philosophy what we would call a non-aesthetic, what he calls these fractal islands, because there's no one way to transform it. Even if you have these rules right. for transformation, yeah. you don't necessarily have to keep doing what Laura Well is doing, which is trying to exposit the way in which one practices it. Right. But actually doing it, he has some examples, these experimental texts. I mean, one of the most famous is in the... Uh, it's the McKay volume that I contributed to. What the fuck's it called? From Decision to... Yeah, uh, from Decision to Heresy. Yeah, from Decision to Heresy. He's got the, what, the Universe Black. That's his most famous. But he's also got the, I've translated one, the Biography of the Eye. It takes one of Hegel's formulas about, you know, you look at another man in the eye and you see nothingness. And he riffs on it. He's got, he's got these experimental texts from the 80s showing what non-aesthetics might look like if we practice the non-philosophical transformation of material. He's got the uh, another one that I translated, again, bootleg on the internet, is um, taking Parmenides, being and thinking are the same, and he kind of riffs on this. It's a lot of riffing. It's kind of like what we do on the <laughs> fucking show in a certain nice. way, except we do it spontaneously. Yeah. He's trying to like 
show how systematize spontaneity spontaneity yeah you know show how <laughs> philosophy is already always already spontaneously riffing and is its own type of aesthetics but when it tries to think itself as whether it be aesthetic or when it tries to think itself as philosophy it spontaneously practices a kind of warfare it spontaneously tries to assert its own method as being closer to the real i always take the classic example of hegel being like well there's fichte there's Schelling. i'm the culmination point i'm higher than i'm closer to the real in my alphabung and i see laura well kind of saying like isn't this just philosophy too core isn't this just what philosophy is always already trying to do which is that in its spontaneous faith in itself is getting closer to the real it pretends it claims to be closer and so there's something about you could say like deleuze overturning the model copy relation and and the fucking anarchy of simulacra there's a certain if you will a kind of crown anarchy of simulacra in the non-aesthetic production of non-philosophical statements from philosophical material as occasion. And I think the, the only thing that Laura Well calls for is a kind of vigilance. And this is this is where he's close to Guattari because he's like, look, if we can create these fractal islands of productions, taking philosophical material, transforming it, making this kind of artistic linguistic transformation, this rehandling, as he calls it, we have to also be willing to collapse everything down to the non-system because otherwise we get a little lazy, we rest on our laurels, and then these new kind of, this sufficiency is always creeping up and willing to create the illusion of being you know, once and for all, when it has to be done one time each time. The Watchery and the machine of unconscious himself, he lays out these principles for approaching the unconscious, like micro politically and pragmatically. But he's like, look, these rules all have to be able to be collapsible. Everything has to be able to be collapsed and start again, because right. yeah. you're always dealing with an analysis one time each time, you know, you're always in the thick of it, you're always dealing with an occasion and not some sort of disembodied abstract theory. Even if that's, even if that seems like what Larwell is always doing, if we apply Larwell and if we see some of his examples of application, uh, like the Leibnizian variants, like the Parmenian, Parmenidian variants, like the universe black, like the Hegelian biography of the eye, you know, he shows examples of these aesthetic productions that I think gives us more flavor of what non-philosophy could be. And it helps to kind of bring to life these abstract notions of suspending philosophy's faith. Because I was kind of thinking about this last night, you know, there's this sense in which philosophy spontaneously practicing, it develops cults in the same way that religions do. Oh, for and, sure. And I, I mean, think, I think yeah. this is the central danger of philosophy is the way that it sort of <clears throat> relies on individuals. And their belief. And it all, yeah, it almost raises individual to these transcendental, yeah, okay, like, it's not the only these transcendental authority just... figures that we have to, right. sort of even Deleuze. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Look, can I, can I just follow up on that? Please. Because it's a very interesting idea, but what I want to, what I want to ask is, is this like, as we were kind of talking about a little bit before, for Deleuze, for Guattari, the way out, let's say, if we're going to, talk in a, in a generous L'Orealian way, the way out of the correlation for Deleuze and Guattari is aesthetic because sensation is going to be something that at its source of production, if you like, is emerges without 
kind of cognitive structure, right? Without, without it's not representational, it's, um, it's not synthesized through the concepts. It's a kind of like you, you were talking about a kind of a crowned anarchy of sort of emergence. Um, and then if you talk about L'Oreal and that there are these kind of aesthetic examples, but I'm just not sure whether these aesthetic examples emerge or can emerge in the same way because they're not tied to a kind of aesthetic structure in the way that the Deleuze and Guattari ones are, that they're not, or are they? I don't know, but it just seems from my reading that it's not about, you do not experience a piece of music as an individual experiencing the production of sound in the same way for L'Oreal as you would for Deleuze and Guattari. I don't know, that's the way it seems to me. I don't know if you see it that way. I think uh, this is close to like when Laurel is talking about what he calls, you know, non-rhetoric, which it's a use of rhetoric. You take philosophical rhetoric, we can imagine one of the most densely and ornate types of rhetoric, like for example, in uh, Spinoza, right? The ethics, which would, from a philosophical point of view, it eliminates all rhetoric, if you want, because it bases itself off of these axioms. It demonstrates the axioms and has these scolia, et cetera. So everything unfolds musically, almost. Everything unfolds logically. Everything unfolds without the kind of uh, violence that persuasion might bring in. We can think Habermas, but, you know, I think that Laurel, with this is kind of what he's thinking about in terms of style, that there could be these different proliferations of styles. He calls them strangerhoods, if you will. And the strangerhoods would be the different ways in which we practicing non-philosophy could take a text like the ethics or take a text even from Deleuze, from Nietzsche, et cetera. And if we apply the quote unquote, what he used to call vision in one, he doesn't really use that language anymore, but if we apply vision in one, which would be unilateralizing philosophy as second, right? As taking the point of view of the one, taking the point of view of its foreclosure, if philosophy can be rearranged, because there is an arrangement in the sense in which Deleuze talks about arrangements, Deleuze and Guattari, right? Agencement, right? There can be an assemblage, an arrangement, a rearrangement, a rehandling of philosophical material. That's That would each have its own style each time that we uh, we do it. So a lot of what, I think I think that the, the production point of view, sometimes that gets lost, is more Derridian than than not, right? Because there is a deconstruction of the philosophical text, but it doesn't stop there. Because what's produced on the other side is from the point of view of the one, from vision and one. Right, because there's no transcendental difference. Right. And so what a text, what a material looks like on the other side, produced in new statements, because that's the thing. It's not just taking philosophy and ridding it of its sufficiency, that's just a theoretical move. The pragmatic move is the production of new statements. And the new has to be gauged solely based on what we see when we see philosophy in one, which is not easy and it takes work. And it, I kind of think about some of this, a lot of, it depends on which aspect or which even like regional 
aspect we look at, for example, we were talking about ontology earlier, you know, Guattarian Chaosmosis comes up with this great phrase about, you know, there's fractal geometry, which is great, but in fact, and this is a Simondonian point of view, I think, in fact, every being is always already sort of individuating and it's fractal in and of itself. So we need to also have a fractal ontology in mind. You could even subtitle Chaosmosis as fractal ontology, although that would you know, although his point is an ethico-aesthetic paradigm, he's obviously focusing on that more or less, but there is a certain fractal ontology to like Lara Wells' point of view and the, the way that the fractals form is based on what are the liberating possibilities once philosophy sort of gets rid of all of its different forms of warfare not only amongst itself, right? Because different philosophies are trying to vie for being the true or the truth with a capital T, but also, and primarily, I think, you know, philosophies warfaring nature with science. I mean, philosophy has mm. always had this need to try to, whether it be Kant, you know, metaphysics is the queen of the sciences, whether it be Heidegger, that science, regional sciences need a phenomenology, a, a sort of they need an ontology. They need a. They need to question being in order to like avoid their crises. You know, we can imagine all of these different philosophers that have always been a little bit anxious about how science performs its own work spontaneously, and they, there may be problems there. But to a certain extent, science works and it does work. But philosophy is always worried about its legitimacy, and I think it's that worry. It's that want to be science that prevents it from being more free. Because I think with Laura Well, non-philosophy allows language itself and representation to free up. Once it's no longer concerned with trying to mirror the real, trying to claim to be closer to the real or co-determinate via language, language itself becomes free for these new productions. Non-philosophy is positive, not just for transforming philosophy, but but also being able to transform our ways of thinking about other disciplines, right? The mm -hmm. region equals X, the X that you bring up, right? Which he gets from Kant, because I think mm -hmm. there is a way in which Larawell too is post-Kantian. I think that that's inevitable with with contemporary thinkers, you know. And, and tell me, sorry, Fran, just butt in here for a sec, because I'm curious about this too, is so how do you see Guattari's relationship to science? Because I always took him as a bit of a science skeptic. What does he say at the end of Chaosmosis? I hold my hand out to the future. There is this sense in which Guattari is skeptical. I think he puts, he forefronts his skepticism about the dangers that science bring. And yet at the same time, in those last pages of Chaosmosis and some of the last stuff that he's writing, he's like, hey, it's very tangible and palpable that these mutations of subjectivity, which he's always trying to put his finger on, like it's pulsing, these mutations of subjectivity are just as latent as the machinic enslavement that he's, he's worried about. It's the same stuff that they talk about in, in Anti-Oedipus about how subject groups are always able to fall back into whatever you want to call it, seriality in the language of Sartre or subjugated groups in their language. There's always this threat. And I think that's why, like Laura Well, he's like, the non-system is the last instance. Everything has to be collapsible. We have to make sure we keep a bit of the death drive in institutions because otherwise they become ossified 
they turn back into seriality. They turn back into totalitarian, fascistic suicide machines. We've got to be able to take the positive side of the death drive, which is the sort of mortal affect that things need to break up and move on. This is, I think, why you said- This is what Dune is about, man. This is what Dune is about. This is the <laughs> golden path. It really is, honestly. I'm yeah. not even not yeah, yeah, yeah. whatsoever, yeah, yeah, but that yeah, really yeah. is the kernel I mean, of it. This is why Guattari is in 300 groups and willing to leave, willing to break them down, willing to say, no, it's it's gone a different direction. This is also, I think, the grid. Nobody should be comfortable in doing just one task. Right. If everyone is sort of rotating and moving out, even if that was an imperfect design in practice, it had a sort of uh, beautiful quality to it in right. theory. Finitude. By... Yeah, the, the, exactly. And so... I, I mean, play, that's I'm interesting, right? Because... I'm playing defense, but yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, because the model at, at Labor, you know, where there's this this kind of everyone's involved in the management of the institution, which, you know, quite <laughs> I mean... uh, which, well, no, I mean, there are there are working groups and including staff and patients, and they're all involved in, in making decisions about the treatment and the structures of the institution, so forth and so on. And, you know, this kind of um, moving people around was like a crucial part of the treatment, which was, you know, if you're a, a lawyer, then you get put in the kitchen or, you know, you've been a taxi driver, so you go in the garden, you know, this kind of thing. And, I remember reading somewhere Guattari saying that like the two most important moments in his life was his divorce and learning to drive. <laughs> but it's just that idea of like, you know, okay, so you're constantly trying different possibilities. You're constantly trying different ways of doing things. And, you know, he calls this methodology at, at Lavoie, at one point he calls it, it's not institutional critique, but it, it's, uh, what is the word now? I'm, Institutional analysis, institutional yeah, analysis. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So doing the analysis with the patients is actually an institutional analysis because you're you're kind of not just focusing on what their problems are, but you're focusing on their problems in the context of the institution and the way that the institution can help them or, or limit the, their possibilities and in, in kind of moving into other things. So, I mean, I think this is comes back a little bit to that question of participation, which we were talking about as well. And, you know, I just think let's, you know, if I... To be generous, I would say, okay, so with L'Oreal, we say that the possibilities of, of participation are kind of remain to be developed, you know, and perhaps you're right that there are strong indications in the axioms or whatever that, that can be done. But I guess I still haven't got over the, I haven't got past the point of being kind of a bit sort of stunned and amazed at the axioms and not yeah. able to make the next move, which is to work out, you know, where to go. Whereas, you know, Guattari was much more just like, it was just like constantly picking shit up and going like, oh, how does that work? What can I do with that? Can I yep. join it to this? Can I join it to that? Can I join it to that? You know, yep. where although the way you describe L'Oreal and the way in which you describe this kind of fractal ontology or a way of using different philosophies that normally wouldn't be connected to each other in new ways sounds kind of really good. I'm just not quite sure what it what it means. Like, I'm not sure how it would work, but it's probably just because I don't don't really know it well enough. This is good, though. Two things. One, I like how Guattari talks about treating patients. You gave a great anecdote about the, the Chilean, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, hey, maybe become a militant. And that was like, oh, yeah. You know, Guattari's like saying someone comes to analysis, they have always been a writer or they've done, you gave the example of a lawyer, for example, doing menial chores or whatever. They come to analysis, they primarily been, you know, at a desk writing. He put them on a bike. They've mm. primarily done menial labor. He 
sets them to writing, to playing music, to, you know, so he's experimenting with desiring machines or however the fuck you want to call it, desiring production. He's putting them on new paths that can open up these possibilities, these, their virtual universes of reference, if you will. values you know that's the thing i think is that you know there is this kind of mundane level in in, i think to lose inquiry and it's not the level that i've often engaged with but it's definitely there which is that this kind of idea of d and re-territorialization it's not a kind of it's nothing sort of dramatic you know it's it's just that it's just like yeah someone's having problems in their life so they learn how to drive yeah and then suddenly the world opens up to them in a way which makes it exciting, new and vibrant again. And so that's a kind of way of treating sort of mental illness in a way that is totally different from a normal psychoanalytical session where it's just you're locked in, you know, you're lying on the couch, you're locked in the room. There's yeah. the, the analyst is there trying to give absolutely nothing away because he thinks that's part of the process by which you're going to encounter your own limitations or your right. own problems. You know, and it all just kind of disappears down this sort of hole. And I think Guattari is absolutely the opposite of that because it's just about connecting to things. It's always, I mean, I kind of, the rhizome has been so overused that I tend not to use it in my own work, but that's the point. It's a point of like a rhizome is like a whole lot of points with connections to all other points. And that's yeah. like the kind of social utopia for Guattari, you know. Yeah. Like anything can be anything else. And but what I was going to say was it's like you mentioned earlier the idea of the people to come and and you know there's this popular concept in, in Deleuze Guattari, but I think on some levels the people to come is nothing more than that. It's nothing more than Guattari learning how to drive. That's yeah. the people to come. It's like it doesn't have to be something like totally different. It can be something, but it can be as well. I mean, I, I often think about that. This like the kind of left and right <coughs> readings of difference and repetition where there's a reading of difference of repetition, which you can sometimes, I don't know, still, but you definitely came, used to come across, which was like, well, everything is difference and repetition, right? It's like football is difference and repetition. That's the principle of difference and repetition. It's the same rules, it's the same field and everything, but every game is different. Right. And it's like, well, yeah, you can find passages like that in difference and repetition where you get that feeling. But then there's the other kind of thing, which is like the sublime, which is like, well, the real eternal return, it's going to be something totally like you can't imagine that. Yeah. Like it's going to literally blow your mind to pieces, you know. Only the extremes return. Right. Yeah. And then it's always like, oh, shit. I don't know if I'm up for that. You know, like, oh, how am I going to get, how am I going to do that? You know, that's, then it's like, then it's too much. Then it's like, oh, okay. So then it's like, we're looking at extremely privileged examples that usually occupy the realm of art. And that becomes a problem if you want to talk about politics and things like that, because these things seem so, so far away. So, you know, I find L'Oreal more in that kind of category where it's like the people to come is like a kind of a seductive but impossible thing that lives just over the horizon that we can't quite grasp or see or whatever but whatever it is it's going to be really fucking good right right right, right. we don't we we can't quite get our head around what exactly it's going to be you know but then there is this other side to it too which i think is you know the guatarian practice which is like it doesn't have to you know that's micropolitics right micropolitics is it can be learning to drive learning to Mm -hmm. drive can like totally change everything and this is this great moment in, in Molecular Revolution in Brazil where Guattari says, I always quote this as, as his example of micropolitics, a portrait by Modigliani can change the 
what is it, the faciality regime of the 20th century. Yeah. And it's like, it's so interesting to me because it's like art and it's like nobody who really has anything to do with art would ever kind of continent such an idea as being in the slightest bit plausible. But, you know, for Guattari, it's like, it's not just that Guattari's being very enthusiastic and quite possibly Guattari doesn't know a huge amount about art. But what it is more is that it's almost like he has to say that because that's the bit of micropolitics, right? The bit of micropolitics is that anything can proliferate difference. It's not that the micropolitical event, whether it's a Medigliani portrait or whatever, is going to change things in a way that you can describe and say, well, it's going to change it like X, Y, and Z. What it's going to do, I think, for Guattari is that's the point, is that it's a proliferation of difference. It's like, it's just the proliferation of creation that is the micropolitical moment. So it's not a specific political position or it's not a specific, specific series of historical events that you could maybe even trace. But it's just that at this moment, everything opens up and its possibility proliferates. So that's the kind of idea of liberation or of freedom, I think, that exists in Guattari. And that's exactly what he reads into the ready-made of Duchamp. So he says, okay, at first there is this taking out of its context and putting it into a new one, which is, you know, what what Cooper mentioned before, there's this kind of... um, this kind of, what is it, this non-signifying rupture. And then what emerges from the non-signifying rupture is this virtual proliferation of, of contingency, basically. It's just the proliferation of possibilities. So at that point, the ready-made can be anything you want. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Nothing specific, but it can be anything that you make it. You can connect it to whatever things are going on for you, and it becomes that. And that's the moment, the, the kind of political moment, the liberatory moment. But what's interesting about that is that that doesn't really have a lot to do with the trajectory of the ready-made in the history of art, right? And the reason why it doesn't is because, and this is where Peter Osborne is super good on this, is because it completely avoids the distinction between art and not art. And so that's where, you know, this very interesting interpretation of the ready-made that Guattari offers sort of vitalizes the ready-made and turns it into this sort of extremely interesting and, and positive example of something. But what it is, it's an, it's an example of ontogenesis. It's not an mm-hmm. example of anything that really has anything to do with contemporary art in a historical sense. And the reason for that is because it ignores the kind of functionality of the ready-made in the history of modern contemporary art practice, which is precisely to chart this line, which in many ways you could argue is at the defining line of modern and contemporary arts development of the difference between art and non-art. And so that I think is, is really interesting to, to understand in relationship to how Guattari, and I think you can also apply this in some ways to, to Deleuze's reading of art as well, the way that they use art. And it, it's, it's, a, it's not so clear in Deleuze because Deleuze engages without history, which is pretty unusual in relationship to the kind of 68 thinkers. Because if you look at Lyotard, who also uses art a lot and engages art with art a lot, but Lyotard is not really interested in art history itself and the history of art. He just picks and chooses various things. And when he's talking about sublime, he's mixing and matching all these things that from the point of view of art history, it's like, it's kind of nuts what he's doing. It's like amateurish, maybe you would say. It's not interested in art historical relation. So although Deleuze does develop an art history in the Bacon book, nevertheless, it is, let's say, oriented around art's onto-aesthetic aspect or onto-genetic aspect. It's vitalist. It's vitalist kind of the way it demonstrates vitalism, if you want to put it in a kind of a more negative sense, 
And I think that's, you know, that to me in more recent times has become really, really important because I've been reading in particular the Peter Osborne books. I don't know if you know those, but they're books specifically about contemporary art. And what he wants to say is basically conceptual art completely changes everything because conceptual art kind of projects an art which is not aesthetic. And that from that point on, the late 60s, contemporary art becomes what he calls post-conceptual art because that's it becomes completely reorganized away from an aesthetic production and towards a conceptual production which involves aesthetic aspects but the aesthetic aspects are only used to kind of illustrate the conceptual kernel of what the work embodies or represents so it made me really aware that all of these kind of 68 thinkers you know that they are really I don't know if you want to call it the arrogance of philosophers when it comes to art but it's like art for them the what what is so good about art is philosophical, right? It's ontological. That's what's so good about art. Art is so powerful. Art is so political. All of these things, because it's ontological, because it's emergence itself in the case of Guattari and Duchamp's Ready Made. Whereas art itself, it's not thinking in that way at all. Art is onto something else. Art is onto something that is also really radical, which is to move art away from a purely aesthetic production. But that's its own trajectory that is not really, it's intersecting a little bit with um, analytical philosophy, at least at the beginning. But then later on, it, it, it incorporates philosophy into itself, but on its own terms as a kind of a way of producing concepts. This has kind of been very important for me because it is about, in a way, the kind of, if you come at things from the point of view of the art, or if you occupy a position, let's say, internal to art, then the 68 position or the 68 animation of art seems like it's kind of quite far away. And you really see that at the end of the art section of what is philosophy, Deleuze and Guattari's what is philosophy, where they basically reject conceptual art straight out. They say conceptual art, I mean, they, they are insulting as possible because they say, well, conceptual art doesn't produce concepts and it doesn't produce sensations. So it's just opinion. It's nothing. And from their point of view, you, you know, you can see it, it's, you can see why they say that. But from the point of view of art, that's kind of not sustainable. That's yeah. like, it's basically like saying, okay, so we're, art is really only existing up to the late 60s. Right. You know, which is, I mean, yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind which of is nice. funny because it kind of, there's like an antagonism towards, I think, the simulacra, perhaps. I don't know. That's kind of like a little thought I just had. Because it incorporates cognition. I don't know. There's more thinking and metaphor, et cetera, involved in the conceptual process, right? Like, am I, maybe I'm just assuming that based on like a kind of banal reading of it. But if my production, if my object only serves as a vehicle for me to preach some type of message at you, for example, how is that really doing something? Whereas a pure aesthetic work that doesn't need a concept is hitting the unconscious, creating the affect at the unconscious level, as opposed to the conscious mind. And I don't know, the theater oh, of representation, like, like these these critiques of representation that I think they are very much against because it goes back to the, the A signification. So something like music would be more, I mean, obviously Guattari says, what is it? Redundancy of resonance or yeah. whatever those whatever the phrase is frequency like, and, and, and resonance yeah and interaction it's like that music yeah. the music communicates to you on a level that is pre-conscious unconscious versus if i take something like you know i'll use a banal example of the cabinet of wonders from from someone like hearst right you can take that and you can apply something like simulacra theory to it right but 
the object itself, is it really, what is it doing without that extra addendum or like that extra logical kernel that you have to consume as opposed to music, which doesn't really like, yeah, you can intellectualize music, but it's invading your body, you know, like an alien force that is different. I don't know if that helps kind of characterize what I'm trying to say. In the most basic terms, the contrast between, you know, Deleuze and Guattari and and, and the Osborne understanding of conceptual art and post-conceptual practice. Osborne says contemporary art or post-conceptual art, it has an historical ontology. So basically it shares its its ontology with... with I mean, it's kind of like philosophy in this regard and kind of what La Roelle is trying to do to subvert philosophy. Well, not subvert, but like... You know, because I think I mean, there's a similarity in that it's so predicated on the historical development of and reaction to, right? Because art is responding to this is a banal point too, but like it's kind of once the technical production gets to a point where we can take a photograph, then that that creates a difference with regard to art and like painting, right? Because there's no need to paint when we can produce a photograph. Well, but there's still sort of it there still kind of is on the it's a weird duality in that sense, right? Because one of the things that Osborne says is that post-conceptual art has what he calls a distributive ontology, which it shares with digital technology and with, with speculative capitalism. And that kind of embeds contemporary art, if you like, within the world, within the dominant kind of, within the dominant ontologies of the world, it's like that. Whereas for Deleuze and Guattari, and not just Deleuze and Guattari, I think Leotard is very similar in this regard. Aesthetics or the way that art uses aesthetics is basically a way of taking us away from all of that. It's a kind of an escape mechanism. So it's a very different way of, of understanding art. And historically, maybe art shared this Deleuzean view up until the point of the late 60s. But then post that, I think art has really shifted and it no longer shares that idea. It's no longer interested in being an escape route in that way. It's interested in being a critical mechanism that is embedded within society and plays a directly political role. And the extent to which aesthetics is used, it is used to those aims, you know, rather than as a kind of an onto-aesthetic experience that is going to be sublime or whatever you want to call it that is going to kind of deconstruct the kind of conceptual framework by which we represent the world you know which is this very ambitious you know way that Deleuze and Guattari at least you know see art what is something like the nft monkey or art what is that going to do really I don't know it's going to make money that's the idea of it. yeah I mean I'm pretty but I'm pretty skeptical about it's what potential like you know what I mean it's almost as if there's a foreclosure of art in a sense. Art, just, is, I mean, art is dead in the way that God is dead. Did almost seem, you know, to, I mean, maybe it to is. Come back, I don't know. To come back to the to my piece, you know, about cosmosis, I think what's really interesting is seeing the relationship between, you know, Eric Elias, Nicholas Burio, and to a certain extent, Bifo, who I would call kind of, you know, intra-art peoples or their approach anyway. So they're, they're kind of inside the art and they're, they're kind of using Guattari to animate a certain intra-artistic story. And then you've got Lazzarato, who's using Guattari's work on aesthetics in a much more kind of political and critical way. And the way that he reads the ready-made, unlike the others, is non-artistically, right? So Lazzarato is not interested in the artistic trajectory of the ready-made, he totally picks up on this idea of laziness and the way that it's basically a removal from the realm of work. It's kind of removing any sense of work from the artistic object. And I think that's really interesting because there is this crucial practice, this crucial 
this crucial moment in, in Chaosmosis where Guattari is talking about a kind of it's like he's talking about the aesthetic paradigm as something that is something that is in art, but it also exists kind of before, I say that in inverted commas, before before art. It's like something that is sort of underlying art that can appear in art, but also can appear in everywhere else. And I think that's the sense in which Lazarado is interested in aesthetics, is that it, it is an aesthetics that is kind of rinsed of its artistic reference. And right, um, yeah. That's kind of I my position, that, I think. I need to read, we need to read Lazzarato. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really interesting because, you know, Lazzarato is basically a kind of more or less depressing read um, <laughs> because he's kind of like, he's more or less starting from the position of like, well, we've already lost, right? And, you know, of course he recognizes that Guattari is not exactly, not exactly agreeing with that position, but he is kind of drawing the consequences of Guattari's analysis to more or less say that. So, I mean, some of what Lazzarato writes is absolutely horrifying, you know, and I mean, going back to vitalism again, I mean, he wants to say that digital technology basically is a way of capturing vitalist creation at its point of emergence. And that's the moment where capitalism is able to exploit it right from the I beginning. Mean, so it's like a sealed, it's a sealed connection and there's no way, there's no way out of it. So yeah, it's like aesthetic, paradigm is basically instrumentalized from from its moment of emergence so yeah well nick land says that capitalism is escape anytime you're doing escape you're simply gonna you're gonna fall back you're gonna get sucked back into it capitalism is deterritorialization well there is a way of saying that that is one of right? the control burn of... um destructive you know the destructive creativity yeah but there is a of... the sense of like going through and coming out the other side i mean that's that nihilistic you know i would call it a kind of like a nihilistic optimism in, in in that early land work which was that you know it's like let's embrace the assassins from the future and let's like you know see what happens after that it's like there is this kind of sense of I mean, to me, it goes out, back to the question, the should side. humanity be saved? To me, that's the question. Maybe not, you know, ultimately. Yeah, maybe not. Like, not. Maybe things not should, you know. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Maybe humanity's not it. That's just the bricks. I mean, that's the, like, that's, the, we, you know. That's we wouldn't be the, the first, of, we wouldn't be the first uh, creature to that's rule the, the world. That's the part of, you know, right. Deleuze. That's the part of Deleuze where he kind of gets close to, to nature and it starts getting, you know, possibly dodgy but it's the, this question of selection you know so i mean humanity is not one thing and True. this yeah, is yeah. there's a whole thing in Deleuze about selection which is all about you know sort of affirmation and affirmation is the technique by which the the ubermensch emerges you know and um it's a highly selective process and in nietzsche's terms anyway involves breeding but you know there is definitely this sense in Deleuze too, where the, you know one, you know Deleuze is like when you start reading a lot of Deleuze, you realise that he, the whole cut and paste thing it pre-existed, you know, digital technology because the same phrases kind of he'll use them over and over again, actually over quite long periods of time too. So one of the things that kind of pops up every now and again is is you get the morals you deserve, <laughs> and, um, right? So it's like, so I guess like. You know, that's a kind of a weird roundabout way of trying to answer your question, like, does humanity deserve to be saved? Well, you know, you'd have to say, maybe in Deleuzean terms, yeah, the ones that want to escape humanity deserve to be saved. You know? <laughs> <laughs> huh. And I mean, that would be very golden pathy, I think. That would be yeah, definitely in line good. with Leto. <laughs> if you're within his 
historical epic. It's like your fodder for history. And maybe that's what we are, no matter what. The problem with Leto, though, is on the one side, he's really interesting because he's a hybrid with another species. But on the other side, he's a total, he's a god. He's a dictator. He's like, he's leading from the front, right? He's decided what humanity's future is. And he's taking us towards it. Well, maybe, okay, in the context of the book, that's not exactly true because it's about a prophecy or it's about a vision and so forth and so on. But, you know, basically that's the kind of political drawback of the God Emperor of June. We got into Dune. (laughs) (laughs) We had to get there in the end. Well, he said said breeding. You said breeding, and I was like, hmm, yeah, okay. (laughs) No, I don't know. God damn it, Coop. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to write a book, Stephen, about Dune. I'm going to write the definitive, totally galaxy-brained philosophical treatise on Dune, incorporating LaRuel, Deleuze, most heavily drawing from the cinema works. I'm sure that you're going to be in a competitive field, I'm sure, because, you know, one of, one of the chapters in my sci-fi book is, is about 2001, where I also tried to do a pretty exhaustive kind of take on it. And, you know, it, it was became one of those Sisyphean projects because <laughs> just simply you couldn't keep up with the definitive books on 2001. You know, you like it's like it was like people were producing the most extraordinarily detailed and, and often unlikely readings of the film, you know, on a permanent basis. It's, it's like, but yeah, no, definitely go for it, I would say, for sure. <laughs> for sure. I still have a soft spot for the David Lynch one. And the TV oh, I do too. one was not bad either, I think. Yeah. See, I saw the David Lynch movie when I was like six years old and oh, yeah. blew my fucking mind. Definitely. I've never gotten over it. That's it. That de- All the determined, it's, it determined your life's trajectory. It's like, you know, we could trace back from this very moment. For yeah, sure. Like, totally. It's, uh, it's Coop, <laughs> Coop's origin story. It is. It really is. Yeah. That's um... it's a good one, though. It's a good one. I would tell this anecdote from when I was a kid. I, I read June maybe when I was about 13. And one of the most overriding things I remember after finishing it was, why the fuck did I read Lord of the Rings? <laughs> When you read Lord of the Rings nowadays, you realize every other page is like some song or some kind of little tune that they're they're singing. And uh, don't tell Nick I said this, though. He'll get angry. But no, I mean, all of this is good. And I was just looking at some of the last pages of philosophy and non-philosophy, Laura Wells' book. And he's talking about, you know, if we stop opposing fiction and the real, if we stop measuring fiction by the real, if we completely derealize fiction, then we can see philosophy as a mode of fiction, make philosophy re-enter through non-philosophy as fiction. And I think that I, I think that. that I think that that kind of still gets us in this notion of non-aesthetics that we were talking about earlier. Uh, okay. That when we treat philosophy as a mode of fiction, as what he calls philosophy fiction, you know, there's science fiction, obviously, and he, he, <laughs> He talks about that a little bit, but his novelty is thinking of philosophy fiction, philo fiction, as he'll call it later. And again, it's not about the false or the powers of the false, as Nietzsche might have it. It's not even about an unfictionalizable in the sense of deconstruction. It's not even, but but I think- I mean, I think it has shades of of like the virtual. I mean, it does have shades- it does have shades of the virtual, but it's no longer about simulacra in a in a sort of Nietzschean sense yeah. about about simulacra being having a claim to truth as Deleuze might. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the, it's the, an anti dualist, right? That's kind of a dualist. Every philosophy has, if it has the status of fiction, then there is the sense in which there can be a proliferation of 
you know, variables. There can be, or as, you know, Deleuze wants to call in, you know, there's varieties in the sense of, uh, of art, right? So I think that that's part of the aesthetics that we were, we were yeah. talking about and what Laura Well, if uh, philosophy comes from myth, right? Like that kind of, the fictional aspect tracks, but sorry. Yeah maybe not coming from, but in terms of its subsoil, if you will, right? That myth would be the subsoil of philosophy and what Thales saying in a all is water, but in a non-mythical mode that you had kind of have the birth of Western philosophy. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which that's- Flows, right? I guess philosophy becomes myth, but in a new sense, right? Because now mythos doesn't mean false because it's no longer about- being posed against the real or what comes closest to the real or determining the real, which is obviously foreclosed to, to thought. I think this is where he's really close to the lows of difference repetition, right? Because the real is, if it is foreclosed to thought, it produces what he calls force of thought. It's thought power, right? Because it's force of thought is based on um, the translation of Marx, right? It's Forced to travai, mm. it's it's Arbeitskraft, right? It's uh, it's mm. it's thought like thoughtcraft, it's dinkingcraft like or something. Predicated on encountering a problematic in the real or in the social or whatever. The, I don't know. In some yeah, I mean, <laughs> if the real forces thinking, it is it does have in, I mean, in terms of the status of of problematics in a certain sense. And uh, I think I mean, I was thinking in the context of like necessity of being the mother of invention. So like. You only have to think because you have a problem. Like you have to have a. And I think that for two thousand years, Euclidean geometry was perfectly suitable to thinking reality, quote unquote. Right. Yeah. That, it's that only when we us. encounter a new. There's a new paradigm. Like relativity, or yeah, precisely, you know, precisely, or, or yeah. curve. You know, the thinking the curvature of the universe. Right. That's when we need Riemannian surfaces. Right. Yeah. Exactly. For millennia, philosophy has spontaneously existed and been perfectly suited to the problematics of the day, whether it be Epicurus and his followers and his friends kind of receding into their garden or, <laughs> you know, the Stoics sort of being cosmopolitan citizens of the of the the cosmic fire. You know, you can imagine each philosophy having its its aspect of being in the city, right? To go to your work on Laura Well and urban studies. And I think that for Laura Well, he wants to be able to think, as you kind of pointed out very nicely, this notion of a what the city as a kind of positive void, whether it be the Cora or, you know, the sort of this gets back to your central question about what's the collective aspect of non-philosophy, what's where does subjectivity go? I think this is kind of one of the themes that he had, and he still kind of hits on even today, this notion of what of introducing democracy into thought, if you will. Once philosophy stops, he he suggests if philosophy becomes fiction, philo-fiction in a new way, and it stops being opposed to the real or stops being measured against a real that it can never measure up to and that it only claims to be able to uh, co-determine, if it stops fighting with amongst itself what Kant calls metaphysics like a battleground, right? Like an arena, the Kant plots. If it stops fighting both science and other philosophies for the sort of valor of winning and vanquishing other philosophies to be the realist i mean then it can then there can proliferate these different you know non-philosophical aesthetics that then there can be 
a kind of peace treaty, but now from science, what he calls generic science to philosophy and no longer from philosophy to science, which has always been the case on philosophy's own ground, even if science has ignored it and usually mocked it. I think that it can be this, a kind of utopia in the sense of Deleuze and Guattari, you know, even at the in a what is philosophy sense, even though Laura Well mocks that text very strongly. And I, I think that the general consensus is a kind of mockery of what is philosophy, like you kind of point out in your chaosmosis review, even Guattari himself doesn't seem very close to their view of art in what is philosophy. Um, no, so, that's right. Well, they've had a lot of trouble. That's a kind of very optimistic, sweet way of, um, of putting it. <laughs> I have the feeling you guys could probably carry on all night. As an outro, do you want to tell us what you're working on now and we can let you go? What I'm I'm working on now is is kind of some kind of good geeky philosophical stuff. I'm I'm yeah. kind of doing doing something about Kant's schematism and um the kind of reception or reading of the schematism, particularly interested in the relationship between Heidegger's reading of the of the first critique and particularly of the schematism and, and Deleuze's use or kind of misuse, I guess you'd have to say, of Kant and difference and repetition. And um, then kind of using this as a way of, I, and I've also been reading Adorno actually, but that's a whole other thing. You know, <laughs> It's like a kind of a, it's like a kind of an embarrassed admission that I only, I've only just read the essay on the culture industry, and I have to say it's fucking amazing. Yeah, it and, is. you know, and the way that he kind of uses the schematism there, where he, he kind of uses it, reminded me a lot of Lazzarato in a way. Anyway, so these various kind of interpretations of the schematism, and then trying to use those to to form some kind of understanding of of conceptual art and the thing that I what I was talking about before this kind of way that conceptual art basically wants to totally shift the the ground of art from a product an aesthetic production to a conceptual one. So basically, cut out the in its early forms to cut out the aesthetic from the artistic production entirely and then that kind of develops into its post-conceptual trajectory if you like drawing a lot on the work of this guy Peter Osborne that I also find very interesting who's basically using critical theory to produce a kind of a very philosophical understanding of what he calls historical ontology of contemporary artistic practice yeah so that's one of the things that I'm doing at the moment that's pretty much the main thing I'm doing at the moment actually so a bit of the old bit of the new it's the usual the usual kind of dance I think that sounds fascinating and it seems to be continuing a trajectory that we find in your work. So I like that we get to hear more of this. And, you know, I know we we didn't necessarily focus on the breadth of your work, but we got to deep dive into some things that interest us. And I think that that's just as productive, perhaps, because what you told Coop, once you've Even written better. something, once you've written something, you kind of want to move on. So I like that we were able to you know, I have to prep it before I come and talk to you guys. Like, <laughs> what the hell was that about? I can't remember a thing. You know, I think it would be nice once you've written more on the, maybe you have something to share with us in the future. Perhaps by this time next year, we'll have you back on and we'd love to. Oh, great. Love we'd to. Love It'd be fantastic. I mean, I, I'd love to talk to you more, David. You know, I think, you know, it's so interesting. You're position between Guattari and L'Oreal and many of the things that you said tonight, you know, was super thought provoking for me, definitely introduced ways of looking at the relationship that never really occurred to me at all. So, so that's really cool. So keep up the good work, you know, we appreciate you ha having you on and we appreciate your time. And uh, it, it was, it was great getting to the weeds with you. And <laughs> as I said, I was playing a little bit defensive, but you know, I, I wasn't trying to necessarily defend any position. I'm very much like devil's advocate because I have a lot of, I've had a lot of the reservations you've had 
And I'm not fully settled on these kind of things because I was kind of talking myself into, into this as I heard myself. Oh, speaking. <laughs> but in any case, thanks for coming on. And in about a week, we'll let you know when the episode's out. And uh, cool. we look forward to, to listening back, but we'll let yeah. you get to your dinner and enjoy yeah, the rest thanks. of your weekend. Yeah. All right. Good on you. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Wonderful to see you again. And that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machine Gun Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Once again, thanks to This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in a block work orange.